This podcast is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. Since 1873, the Naval Institute has provided an open forum for thoughtful discussion of the most important issues facing the sea services and national security. Become a member today. Go to www.usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me from a separate location due to our current circumstances is the editor of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. So um, this is the first podcast we're doing uh, with this particular lash-up. Um, yeah. I, I'm seeing you on, the, on my computer screen looking great from your deep shelter. Deep shelter in Burke, Virginia. In yes, Burke, Virginia. at my kitchen table. Okay. And I'm here just south, or where am I? I guess I'm, yeah, southwest of Beach Hall, about two and a half miles here yep. in Annapolis. As you've mentioned in a previous episode of the podcast recently, the team is doing a fantastic job of adjusting to this current circumstance the nation is, fa- actually the world is facing. And so... Um, it's not business as usual, but we are open for business, as you have coined, and so we're happy to be uh, doing the podcast whenever we can. Yeah, and we've actually ramped up the pace of our podcast. Uh, we're doing two or three or four a week, which is great because people have, you know, some more, uh, many of the people in our audience have more time to listen to podcasts and are working remotely or learning remotely. If you're a midshipman or a cadet or a you know, another type of uh, college student or, uh, yeah, it's interesting times for sure. Uh, we had a, I'll just provide a quick update. We had a great email yesterday from Captain Holly Harrison, uh, U.S. Coast Guard, who's a former member of our editorial board. In fact, former chairman of our editorial board. She's now the CEO of the national security cutter, the Kimball out in Hawaii, uh, home ported in Pearl Harbor. Uh, and she, uh, just provided an update on, how the coronavirus has impacted her crew and ship readiness and work from home and how her crew is adjusting to this and essentially spreading out the ship's work a bit over longer hours with more people off the ship than on the ship at any given time. Uh, She said that they went out to sea uh, in uh, early March uh, for a couple weeks of uh, workups. And when they came back, the world had completely changed. So uh, Holly's working that email, you know, retooling it for us to publish as a proceedings commentary, which we hope to get out next week. It's a really interesting insight into, you know, command of a ship uh, at a time that, that you know, the, the world is just uh, sort of going through some real big adjustments. And we've sort of realized that we hesitate to talk about current events because by the time we get the show post-produced and live, uh, the the world has changed quite a bit, and currently we're thinking about the the circumstance with the uh, Theodore Roosevelt, which is dealing with the first elements of an outbreak uh, among the crew. So we'll just in general ask our listeners to stay tuned to US Nine News for the latest and greatest of how the coronavirus is impacting the sea services. Yeah, that's great advice. The, the team at USNI News is really following all the developments from the deployments of the Comfort and the Mercy 
to what's happening on individual ships and naval special warfare. I know has got a few uh, cases of coronavirus in, in their ranks, and uh, Sam and company have been uh, all over all of those d- developments. So joining us on the line from the Naval War College or from Newport, Rhode Island, near the Naval War College, is Professor Pauline shanks Corin. She is a professor of philosophy at the Naval War College. She's a proceedings author. She wrote a piece in uh, on Proceedings Online that we published last week called Was the Former Secretary of the Navy Really Insubordinate? She is also a Naval Institute Press author, and her recent book that just came out is called On Obedience, Contrasting Philosophies for the Military, Citizenry, and Community. Professor Shanks Corin, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Thank you for having me. How are things going up in Newport? Um, they're they're going okay. I think like most of the country, we are more or less locked down. Uh, today, I am teaching my first uh, Naval War College course uh, online, Leadership in the Profession of Arms. I'm not sure if we'll have anything to talk about, but uh, I think we probably will find things to chat about today. When you do that online learning, is it... Uh via sort of a go-to meeting, or is it just a conference call? Is it video and, and voice, or just voice only? Um, it's uh, We have a, it's called Learning Management Platform uh, Blackboard, and there is a video conference feature on that. So we have been, uh, in the College of Leadership and Ethics, we've been having some of our meetings on that to sort of practice, but that's how we'll be doing our uh, synchronous part of the class, but then we also have added parts of the class that are done sort of offline. So we're having to switch up sort of how we do our teaching. Normally we teach for three hours uh, once a week, uh, but of course, uh, as you said in your intro, the world has changed, so we're trying to uh, adapt to that and think about how best to serve our students. So let's go Back to when we were worried about things like palace intrigue uh, around the White House and the Pentagon in your article from the March proceedings. Let's review the TikTok of how that all went down. Well, I, I mean, I think there's a lot. First of all, there's a, a lot that we don't know. Um, and so, I mean, roughly this had, you know, the, the major piece of this had to do with the Gallagher case. Gallagher had appealed on Fox News and through other channels to the president for some kind of remediation uh, in his case. The president had indicated um, at the time and also prior that he was open to to pardons or other remediation. And there was a debate within the, uh, within the community, within the military community of which Gallagher is a part about that question, and and it really came down to the question of whether or not the profession sort of had a right to decide who would be a member of the profession or not, or if that could be overridden uh, by the president. And ultimately, the president did uh, override that, and so there's been a lot of conversation back and forth about what it means to be a member of a profession and one of the definitions of a profession is that they decide, the profession itself decides who members of the profession will be. They admit members of the profession and they can also expel them. So this was the question of whether Gallagher would get to keep his, his trident pin, where the way he would still be a member of that community. And of course, uh, there was some confusion and back and forth as 
with, um, you know, with, with the secretary and, uh, ultimately he ended up resigning. So, um, but like I said, there's a lot that we don't know. So we're, we're sort of going on what, what came out in the media and, and various reports. And so the, the question related to my book is whether or not, um, the secretary was disobedient. Is this a case where you, the president says, here's what we're going to do and you execute and salute, or is there a place for something other than execute and salute? And that's the topic of the book and the, the proceedings article sort of takes that incident as a, as a jumping off point to talk about that question. So if I could just read a little bit for our listeners from your proceedings article about halfway down, uh, there's a quote here. Um, soldiers are taught to obey even petty and foolish commands. And similarly, Samuel Huntington, who, who by the way, wrote for proceedings a number of times, argues that obedience along with loyalty is a core virtue for the military professional. However, you write, Given the circumstances surrounding Spencer's firing, on deeper examination, this argument is problematic and then it lacks important context. It ignores complexities of the subject of obedience in a military setting. So talk a little bit about the um, uh, tension between having to blindly obedi- you know, obey orders as a military professional and the times when it's not right to blindly obey and you owe your boss an explanation or you owe your boss or you owe the profession an opportunity to come back and go, hey, boss, I, I know you're saying this, but maybe this is a better option. Or, or you know, as some have said, you either salute and obey or you, or you resign. Um, and you point out in your article that those aren't the only two uh, options. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's how we usually think about it. And I should note, I mean, Secretary Spencer is complicated because he's a political appointee. So there's, you know, uh, scholars, um, you know, disagree about to what degree he's a member of the profession. But I'm just going to assume for the sake of the argument that he's a member of the profession and, and an important one um, as a service secretary. Um, and so the question becomes, you know, and in the book, I talk about that we think about explicit obedience. I tell my children to do something, they do it. Or explicit disobedience, they look at me and say, no, mom, I'm not going to do that. Um, but the book spends some time carving out and thinking about all of the ranges of responses in between. And in the military, I think there are also uh, a range of, of responses um, and there's been much made of, of some members of, say, the military or some cabinet members maybe slow walking things the president wants to do or sort of passively resisting things that he might want to do. But I think it's, it's more complicated, um, more complicated than that. And my argument is for something to be obedience, it has to be voluntary. It has to be intentional. Um, and it, it has to be in response to a command issued by someone who's in legitimate authority. And so the question about what the effect of the order will be, if we think that the order will cause harm, I think there's a moral obligation from the professional to highlight that to the person that's issuing the order. Now, hopefully the person who's issuing the order has thought this through, but we're all human beings and decisions often take quite place quickly. And so sometimes we don't maybe foresee the consequences or foresee aspects of, of, of decisions that we're making. And so other members of the profession 
I argue, may have an obligation, either in private ways or in public ways. I think most of us would prefer to be taken aside privately. Um, but uh, perhaps if that fails and the issue is important enough, it might be worth, you know, resigning or some other kind of public protest. Now, of course, I spent a lot of time in the book caveating this until the cows come home because, of course, there's lots of dangers here. But there are also dangers, as we saw at Nuremberg and the My Lai Massacre, which is the subject of my uh, PhD uh, dissertation. There are also dangers to blind obedience. Things can happen. People will carry out things that are immoral, illegal, or, or, or really strategically unwise. So uh, this is, it, I think it's a complicated issue. It's not as simple as just execute and salute or resign. So there, there's a lot, as you've suggested, going on with the Spencer situation. I agree. Let's just assume that he's a, uh, uh, as a political appointee, he is in the chain of command. And I think Milai is a good analog with respect to the rules of engagement and with the slippery slope of asymmetric war and how the attitude of uh, the U.S. Army at that time was sort of like everybody's a combatant. You can't tell the difference. And that was some of the logic that you heard yeah. from Gallagher and his defenders was, hey, in these kinds of wars, you don't know who's who. They're not wearing uniforms, dot, dot, dot. Right. So in terms of the just war theory of it and rules of engagement and compliance with them, this is where an asymmetric war brings in some, as you've said, nuance and, and subtleties that if we don't comply with them, we can get ourselves into trouble. Yes, exactly. To what extent does this idea of a range of responses come up with your, with your students who are mostly lieutenant commanders, commanders, majors, uh, lieutenant colonels in that range in their career span? Have they thought about this? Do they talk about this? Uh, what kinds of examples resonate most heavily with them? Yeah, we do, we do talk about it. Um, and I think they are coming both from the perspective of whatever their own experiences have been before, um, before they come to the work hodge and then where they think they might be going or how we're trying to prepare them for where, uh, they might be going next and that there's different sets of issues with those two pieces of their career, but it's something that they, you know, we, we talk about experiences where they thought their boss was giving a bad order or there was a problem there and what do you do with that? Um, and then thinking about where they may now be the person who is who is giving that order and how are they going to lead and how are they going to engage with the people that, that they are leading. So I think my students and, and, and uh, as I was uh, writing the book, I did, as I often do, test out my ideas on my students so they can correct me and uh, uh, keep me, you know, off the shoals. As a civilian, I have limited experience, and so they are really great about telling me when I'm off, off kilter or, or giving me things that I need to think about. But I think this is something that that most people in the military have thought about at some point, although the book also engages what happens in the civilian realm as well. So I think this is something that uh, it's it's international politics and oh, it has been in international politics for a long time. And so this is something I think people think about and wonder about. In specifics with the, again, the chronology of the Spencer situation, there was some wrangling with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or the Joint Chiefs in general, CNO, Commandant Marine Corps, SECNAV, uh, and SecDef 
about the president's reaching in, as it were, could be viewed as prejudicial to good order and discipline. Certainly in the face of Admiral Green, the head SEAL, trying to fast erect the community in terms of conduct and sort of general approaches to professionalism. Secretary Spencer was trying to at once thread the needle, as it were, with the president doing his thing with this general sense of, hey, war is tough and you got to you know, protect the warfighter. And also listen to CNO, the other warfighting commanders that are saying, hey, sir, if, if, if we just let this happen, then I'm going to have trouble with basic execution of orders and insubordination potentially. It can be a wildfire. So Secretary Spencer was trying to work some kind of a, a drug deal, I guess. Um, and, and he got, he got, he didn't coordinate it or there's, there's varied stories whether the chief of staff at SECDEF knew about it, but ultimately Secretary Esper did not know about it. And so when it came to light, whatever he was trying to work in terms of a, uh, a quid pro quo, um, it, it didn't, it didn't play out very well. And so Secretary Spencer was resigned slash was, was fired. So, does that matter with respect to the, the the big picture or is there something I'm leaving out or what about all of that? No, I mean, I think that's right. I, and I think if there is a, you know, a, if there is a critique or if there is a lesson to be learned, it's as you negotiate. And one of the chapters in the book is thinking about obedience as a, as a form of negotiation, not a form of haggling, but a form of negotiation in a, in a more perhaps subtle sense. Um, that if when and if you're going to engage in that, I think it's it's wise and it's important to make sure you have clear lines of communication and everyone is as much as possible on the same um, on the same wavelength. But I think in what you just laid out very well, there was sort of a basic disagreement about the sort of the political value or the importance of you know. Um, uh, lifting up and being seen to protect warfighters. That was one argument, right? You can't, you know, put these people in asymmetrical conflicts and expect them to act like Boy Scouts is the argument that I heard a lot. Um, but then on the other hand, uh, you are a member of the profession of arms. And in the case of this community, you are a member of an elite community, which is presumably held to higher standards, not lower standards. Uh, than the rest of the force. So what it means to be a member of a profession is to uphold certain norms and standards that define that profession and to execute your expertise within the constraints of those norms that define the military community of practice. So that includes things like just war theory, the UCMJ, the Geneva and Hague Conventions. Those are all constraints on how we expect uh, members of the profession of arms to use and manage violence. We don't just let them do anything that they want to for good reasons. And the most important reason is they're not acting on their own behalf. Gallagher was acting in my name. He was acting in your name. He was acting in all of our names. So it's not just about Gallagher. It's about what he's doing as an agent of the state. So I think you had sort of those two conflicting, uh, two conflicting pieces which are not new pieces. It was the same argument about Lieutenant Kelly uh, in v- in Milai. Uh, the exact same discourse happened. Um, so it's not a it's not a new problem. Um, but I think 
trying to figure out how you deal with those two is is a is a tricky thing and and Spencer Secretary Spencer was in a difficult position and there's sort of no way around that we could argue about whether uh, you know as Aristotle would say he he used prudence in doing what he did is was there different things he might have done that were that would have yielded a better outcome but you know at the end of the day what happened happened but I think it's sort of a basic you know, there's a basic tension between those two to sort of defend the warfighter at all costs, and you got to break some omelets if you're going to make, or you know, you're going to break some eggs if you're going to make omelets. And this sort of, we have this idea of a profession, and good order and discipline is central uh, to that profession. And also the question of if this happens in the Gallagher case, what's the precedent that is now set? Will people in the future? turn other people in for war crimes if they think, well, the person's just going to be pardoned. Um, so there's lots of questions about about precedent and what the effect on professionalism would be within this community in particular, um, but more broadly in terms of the military. I appreciate that, that point in your article about obedience and negotiation. It reminds me of uh, earlier in my career, uh, the, the example of President Clinton coming in with the promise to allow gay people to serve openly in the military, and that that was something that was not popular with the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The, the heads of all the services thought that that was going to create some significant problems in morale and discipline within the force. And you saw, you know, Chairman Colin Powell, who was widely respected and still is, um, you know, negotiate with his new Commander in Chief. Right? There was a push pushback. There was a, a negotiation that eventually resulted in don't ask, don't tell, which was sort of a, a half measure. Um, right. But it was clearly, you know, you, some people would say, well, you know, Colin Powell, he, he should either resign or he should just get on board with his new commander in chief. But it was more it was more subtle than that. It was a it was a complex issue. And they were within the profession that he had served in at that point for 35 years were sort of professional norms and standards that he was worried about changing overnight, you know, too radically. Um, yeah, and the other piece of a profession is that they have expertise. So when I go to my doctor for a, a checkup, um, in general, I'm relying on that they have some expert uh, knowledge and, and that they will use that expertise within the norms and the practices of the medical community. So we're sort of relying on that. Now, I really think he's wrong, I might go get a second opinion, I might do some research, um, and then there might be some conversation about is this really the best course, um, you know, of treatment. But by and large, those are fairly rare sort of circumstances. Most of us, when we go to the doctor, they say, you have X, and here's the prescription for that. Most of us say, okay, yeah, no, I'm 50, I need a colonoscopy. Okay, that sounds reasonable to me, right? So there's this this question of, of trust as well, and this can be very tricky when it comes to the civilian-military uh, relationship, right? And you pointed to a very good example of that where, you know, there were some things that I think uh, Colin Powell thought that President Clinton had not been thinking about or perhaps had not considered, um, and, and vice versa. So um, I think that this is, uh, it's, you can issue a, I can issue a command to my children to do something, but they also have a voice here. Um, 
I don't have unlimited command authority as much as I would like to think that I do. And one of the examples that I use in the book is some French troops on the Western Front who basically mutinied in 1917 and 1918. Uh, they mutinied outright, but there was there were chains of, of less than obedience and disobedience that sort of led up to that and ended up basically renegotiating the command authority uh, that they were a part of. It's a relationship. It's not one directional. So, and I know that that may not, that may be, seem counterintuitive to perhaps some of your, um, perhaps some of your listeners, but I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's complicated. If, if you're going to command people, I think in the military, the expectation is that one hopes for the most part they're going to obey. And the question is, when will they obey? Why will they obey? And it can't just be because you said so. To, to get back to just war theory and the Cali analog, because I, I think in recent months, whatever we learned from the, the Cali situation has been completely lost uh, to a large segment of society. And ironically, these are people who lived through that and in some cases served during that time. Um, so all just war theories are not created equal. Let's just say, so if I'm fighting a conventional war, let's say World War II, and I'm conducting a bombing campaign against, uh, and my target are industrial centers, the, the ball bearing plant in Dusseldorf or whatever, in the course of executing those missions, I may, uh, affect collateral damage and civilians may be killed. Um, at the end of the war, that that wouldn't be considered a war crime. Now, if I'm intentionally bombing civilians, then that's potentially a war crime. The Holocaust is not bad things happen in war. That's a war crime, to put it mildly. Um, so similarly, in an asymmetric war, and this is where it's even more acute, perhaps, in an asymmetric war, and I've walked the, the streets of eastern Afghanistan with the 101st Airborne and seen how tough it is, the, the problem they're faced with in terms of trying to win hearts and minds or figure out what who's good and who's bad, right? So when I heard that one of the crimes had been, they shot, and this wasn't Gallagher, it was uh, one of the other guys that had shot two teens on a motorcycle at long range without any real assessment of whether they were a threat or not. That resonated with me because that happened a handful of times uh, when I was in Afghanistan and, and the guys I was patrolling with were, were super professional and they would, you know, they wouldn't just immediately start shooting at them, right? And so that is no doubt a tough problem. And this is what our troops are faced with and this is why they merit our respect as a populace. But those who do it right should be recognized beyond those who do, who've done it wrong and those who are, in this case, by their peers, ruled to have done it wrong. And, and so I think what was lost in that narrative was bad things happen in war is just sort of this, this absolute that we all just would nod and accept that that's true. That gets back to your thesis about professionalism and the profession of arms. So that to me is what was completely missing from the discussion and uh, that that's what I was uh, frustrated by, particularly with the narrative coming out of the White House. Um, yeah, I think, you know, bad things happen in war. It depends what you mean by that. Let's, 
I, I don't like the word bad. Like, um, there, there are destructive pain inducing harms that come in war. Some of them are morally justified and legally justified under just war theory and the legal analogs that are based in just war theory. And some are not just, and some are not justified. As you said, intentional targeting of non-combatants is not okay. Um, and if you are going to be a member of the profession, part of what it means when you hold up your hand and take that oath is that you are promising to abide by those restrictions. And we train you and educate you as much as we can to abide by those restrictions. But we also expect members of a profession to have prudence, to have professional judgment and discretion that they exercise, just like my doctor exercises judgment and discretion, uh, those soldiers in Afghanistan uh, on a daily basis are are exercising a professional judgment and discretion. Is it easy? No, that's why there's a profession, right? If anyone could make that decision, then you wouldn't need a profession. You wouldn't need people who have expertise. You wouldn't need people who uh, conform to certain uh, normative expectations, but it's difficult. And so that's, that's what being a member of that profession means. And I think that you're right. There are plenty of people I taught, uh, when I taught undergraduate, I taught Army ROTC cadets, and there are plenty of, of, of my cadets and colleagues in the military who served honorably, followed the rules as best they could, who even come home with PTSD or moral injury because of the things that they wrestled with to try to do the right thing. Um, and so I think it's very important to honor that and not dishonor that by just saying, ah, bad stuff happens. So it's okay if someone just doesn't feel like taking the time to make the right judgment or they were angry that day or, or whatever the issue, uh, whatever the issue is. You are a professional and, and, uh, I, you know, as your employer, I expect you, uh, to act in a professional manner. That doesn't mean people are perfect. That's not what I'm arguing. We, but we do have sort of uh, standards. I expect my doctor, even if he had a fight with his spouse that morning, to still come into surgery and do, and do a reasonably good job. So, that, I mean, that's part of what it means to be a member of, of the profession. And, and so I think that was some of the, the back and forth. And that may not be, I, I didn't get the sense that was on the minds of some of the uh, civilian political uh people who are making arguments um, about, you know, bad things happen in war. And the other thing that we should maybe think about is a Chief Gallagher, the other two who were pardoned, don't live in a vacuum. So I asked questions about where was the leadership around them. I know Chief Gallagher deployed a whole bunch of times in a row. He was a hacker. Um, so that's a good thing. But at some point, uh, I think his attitude about the uh, – the overall mission uh, got mangled a bit. And, and so I wonder in the discussion where, where his lieutenant was, where, where was the, the CEO of the, uh, the overall team, um, not just the team, but the overall, what, what comes above a team, Bill? What, what's, what's task force or task group? Yeah. The, the task force. So again, we shouldn't just like blame Gallagher alone solely if we're blaming him at all. Plus, we put him into these situations, right? This is the other thing that he said about Callie in his defense. 
You know, he's, there's no end state. He's not taking ground. He's just patrolling without any idea of who's good and bad and, and, uh, without any allies or, you know, this is by this time the, the war in Vietnam had become pretty futile and uh, certainly the public support had eroded. Um, yeah. I mean, I think leadership doesn't, I mean, you can't just look at these cases in isolation and, and we tend to do that um, just to focus on one thing at a time, but there's a, there's a chain of command and there's both civilian and, um, and military leadership. Um, and that's, we actually spend maybe a bit more time at the War College sort of thinking about that question because, uh, of, you know, the students are being educated to think about things in a strategic kind of, uh, context. And so that is important as well. The profession doesn't just include Gallagher and Kelly. It includes all of those people. And part of my argument is that the higher up chain of command you go, the more uh, responsibility you have, the higher our expectations should be about how you exercise your professional judgment and discretion. And so, and the other thing that I would say is, I make the point in the book uh, that human beings are habitual creatures. So when we, we tend to focus on whatever the incident is, but the question is, is how did Gallagher, Cali, or or whoever it is, how did they get to the point that that seemed like an okay thing to do, right? right it's not right. just one action in isolation. There was a stream of events. There was a uh, perhaps a military culture, different institutional cultures. There, there were things that led up to that event, and we also have to look at those because it's an issue. It's an issue of culture as well, right? Within the within the profession, um, and when you talk to especially special forces people. You know, you do get some, like, you get some people who are saying, listen, you know, looking at what's going on, this shouldn't be a surprise to people that stuff like this was happening, right? There were lots of perhaps reasons, which is not to perhaps excuse uh, these incidents, but if you're going to change the course for the next time, you do have to understand what happened and why it happened so you can fix whatever or address whatever the systemic issues uh, were and I think we do tend to look at these things uh, in isolation, and that's and that's deeply problematic. This conversation is it's great. It reminds me of the uh, guest we had on the podcast, the Proceedings author who wrote in the, the uh, February issue of Proceedings, Captain Daniel Stewart, a retired Navy SEAL. His article was called "None of Us Is That Man." All must aspire to be, which was about the SEAL professional ethos. He was writing about some of the. Uh, more infamous events, including the Gallagher um, case, that have that have sort of been a, a stain on naval special warfare in the last couple of years, and and he was you know hearkening to that professional ethos and about how hard it is. You know, we're talking about how how challenging it is to put people, particularly into these asymmetric warfare contexts, and then act ask them to act professionally. But Daniel Stewart's point was, yeah, but we got to do it. And leadership is a really key part of that. And you have to enforce standards in every single day, not just standards for yourself, but standards for your team and continuously reinforce what those standards are, what that professional behavior looks like. And when when you're meeting that standard, great. And when you're not meeting that standard, to continue to remind people that you've got to live to that standard. That was it. So our listeners, if you haven't listened to that podcast, uh, go back about a month or so. Captain Daniel Stewart. Uh, on the podcast in, uh, I think it was in February. 
his his article was very good and the podcast is is good as well and he's right this is not just about what happens in combat this is about what happens every day leading up to that as well and you can imagine the degree to which things are getting challenged with the current pandemic you know again we started talking about the the situation on TR um so it's going to really take referent leadership to get people uh, to do the right thing to try to mitigate the spread of the virus for starters and then to maintain some semblance of morale in the face of this you know this is where leadership uh, steps up so the book is on obedience contrasting philosophies for the military citizenry and the community the author is Pauline Shanks Carr and a professor at the Naval War College Pauline thanks for this conversation today thank you so much to both of you great question Okay, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.